And as you take your seats, you can open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. This will be our last time, at least in this series, looking at the book of Ephesians. This evening we're, we're looking at verses 18 to the end of the chapter, and I will read for the sake of context, beginning in verse 10. So Ephesians 6, verse 10, reading through the end of the chapter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Amen. That is God's word to us. Well, once again, we're looking this evening at verses 18 to 24, finishing up Paul's letter to the epistles and considering especially the theme of prayer. I'm considering this evening the theme of prayer. When I was younger and when I was first learning to play basketball, I didn't make it much beyond first learning to play basketball, but when I was first learning to play basketball, I remember that one of the first lessons I learned as I began to attempt to dribble the ball was that when you dribble, you don't want to keep looking down at the ball while you dribble. You want to get to the point where you can dribble and look up, look around the court. Because in basketball, if you're always looking down at the ball while you try to dribble, then you're not going to be able to know what's going on around you on the basketball court. You're not going to know where your teammates are. You're not going to know who to pass it to. You're not going to know where, the, where the, um, the opponents are, where the other team is. In fact, if you're looking down at the ball, dribbling the whole time, you won't even know where you are because you won't have your bearings on the basketball court. You'll have no idea what's going on in the big picture of the game around you. You'll just be so focused on the ball that that's the only thing that you're really aware of. And unfortunately, at times in the Christian life, I think our prayer life can kind of resemble in some ways a person who's just learning to play basketball and only looks down at the ball the whole time, and who never looks up to see the bigger picture. Our prayers can become 
so limited to our personal needs, our felt needs, our immediate needs, and our life, our lives, that we fail to look up and see what God's doing in the lives of others and in the bigger picture of his kingdom. We're daily confronted, I think all of us would agree, you have a daily sense of your weakness as you go through life. You know what it's like to feel weak, you know what it's like to face temptations, you know what it's like to stumble and to fall. And so day after day, there is a felt sense of our personal need. Uh, I think most of us in this room would agree with that. We could say, amen, I am needy. And so what ends up happening so often is that we take our needs into the prayer room and we focus so much on our needs, not speaking for everyone, I'm not saying this is a blanket statement for all of your prayer lives, but it certainly is a temptation to become so concerned with your own personal needs that you never look up. You never see what's going on around you and have a greater perspective on the bigger picture. In the passage that we're looking at this evening, I think Paul is urging us to look up. He is urging us to have prayer lives that go beyond, not to the exclusion of, but that go beyond our personal felt needs. And to pray in a way that reflects our shared bond and union with all believers everywhere. As the title of the bulletin, or the title of the sermon in the bulletin suggests, if you have one, you can notice there that the title says, Prayer, that's terrible grammar on mine at least. Does yours have bad grammar? Mine says, Prayers that is bigger than ourselves. Some might say prayer that are bigger than ourselves because I had two different documents on the same, anyway. Um, so, prayers that is bigger than ourselves, prayers that are bigger than ourselves. That's the title of the sermon with right grammar. We want to pray prayers that are bigger than ourselves, prayers that go beyond our own personal felt needs. One of the themes, uh, hopefully you'll remember, as we've gone through the book of, the, of, uh, of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, one of the themes that has consistently been reiterated over and over again throughout this letter is the union that believers share with one another because of their union with Jesus Christ. That is a common thread all the way through this letter. Paul tells us that every single believer is joined to Jesus. You are one through your union with Jesus. And because of our union with Jesus, we're also united with all who make up the body of Christ. There's an essential spiritual oneness between us and Christ, and therefore there's an essential spiritual oneness between us and every other believer that belongs to him. That's what Paul has said in chapter 4. If you want to turn back, probably one page, or maybe not even turning back a page, so chapter 4 in verses uh, 4 to 6. The Apostle Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is oneness that exists in the body of Christ because of the oneness of the Lord to whom we're joined. And he says something similar in chapter 2. You could flip over to that. Chapter 2 and verse 16 talking about being redeemed by the blood of Christ and how Christ has made both Jew and Gentile into one new man, the Apostle Paul says that he might reconcile them both, in verse 16, might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. And that is the theme consistently throughout the letter of Ephesians. We are one with Jesus, therefore we are one with all the saints. If we were to go through the book of Ephesians and just look at the different ways that the church is described, these are some of the things we would find. One man, the church is one man, every believer everywhere, 
makes up the one new man. The church is one body. The church is one family. The church is one nation. The church is one temple. The church is one bride. And the church is all united to the same Savior. That's the book of Ephesians summed up. All believers are united to Jesus. Therefore, there is an essential oneness that exists among all believers in the body of Christ. And because we share this common bond, we are one together, united in the Lord Jesus Christ, our life should reflect a concern for others that belong to the same body of which we, to which we belong. And this is especially true when it comes to our prayer life. Because we are one with all believers, our prayer life should reflect that oneness. It should be characterized by regular and consistent intercession for others, for other Christians. And so that's the theme this evening. Prayers that are bigger than ourselves, rooted in this understanding that in Christ we have been united to believers everywhere as one new man, one body. And so we'll spend most of our time this evening in verses 18 to 20. That's really the theme uh, of prayer. And, and at least those are the verses that contain the theme of prayer. And then we'll close with a few comments on verses 21 to 24. But in verses 18 to 20, speaking of prayer, we'll see that prayer that is bigger than ourselves consists of three things. What does prayer that is bigger than ourselves look like? Well, first it looks like prayer for all the saints. It's prayer for all the saints. And then second, it's prayer in the Holy Spirit. Prayer that is bigger than ourselves is prayer in the Holy Spirit. And then third, it's prayer for gospel proclamation. Prayer that is bigger than ourselves includes prayer for gospel proclamation. So first, prayer that's bigger than ourselves is prayer for all the saints. Look with me again at verse 18. Paul writes, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. If you were here two weeks ago, uh, the last sermon that we had from the book of Ephesians, you'll remember that just prior to this section is Paul's discussion of spiritual warfare. We've just read it a few moments ago. Paul talks about the fact that every believer is in the middle of a spiritual war. We have a real enemy who is incessantly at work to undo, to destroy, to prevent the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. And therefore, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we must put on the full armor of God. Because of the war that we're in, because of the enemy that we face, we must put on the whole armor of God, Paul tells us. And here, Paul's reminding us that prayer is an essential component in our spiritual warfare. You cannot wage war against the enemy. You cannot wage war in a fallen world for the advancement of the kingdom apart from prayer. It's essential. John Piper has famously called prayer our wartime walkie-talkie. Some of you will be familiar with that phrase. It was pretty viral a number of years ago. This snippet from his sermon where he urges us to consider prayer not just as some comfortable little telephone that we call on God for to give us certain comforts that we think we need. But it's a wartime walkie-talkie. It is meant for battle. It is meant for the purpose of the mission to which we've been appointed, the war that we've been placed in. When we were brought to Christ, he put us into the battle. He gave us a mission. He commissioned us for the advancement of his kingdom. And then he handed us the transmitters, the walkie-talkies that we need to call back to headquarters and to communicate with the commander himself 
so that at any point in the middle of the battle, we have access to the commander that we might call into our lives all of the needed grace we need to stand firm against the enemy. And this commander that we call with this wartime walkie-talkie, he's faithful to meet us in the middle of the battle every time. And so we've been given these wartime walkie-talkies not for them to sit idly on the shelf, but for us to pick them up in the middle of the battle and call out to God because we recognize that we are facing an enemy far too great for us to overcome in our own strength, and we have no resources to advance the kingdom of Christ. And so we pick up the wartime walkie-talkie, and we pray, and we cry out to God for the advancement of his kingdom. And Paul's reminding us here that we are not the only ones in the battle. We're just, you as an individual, you are just one soldier in the army of Christ. You're not the only one in the battle. You're in the battle alongside all the other believers in this room. You're in the battle alongside all the other believers in the New River Valley who belong to faithful gospel-preaching churches around us. You're a soldier among many soldiers in the army that is that consists of all believers everywhere, all throughout the world today. You are one soldier in a, in a very great and very numerous army. And so Paul says we should not be praying using that wartime walkie-talkie just for ourselves, but we should be picking it up on behalf of our fellow soldiers. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he says, No soldier entering battle prays for himself alone, but for all his fellow soldiers also. They form one army, and the success of one is the, is the success of all. In like manner, Christians are united as one army and therefore have a common cause, and each must pray for all. So fairly straightforward point, then, that Paul is making. You must pray for all the saints. And so naturally, the, the obvious question that we should ask ourselves is, do I pray for all the saints? Do I pray for other believers? Are petitions for God's sustaining grace in the lives of other soldiers that are in the middle of the war, do those petitions characterize my personal prayer life? Another good question to ask would be, how strategic are your prayers? How strategically do you approach prayer? Does it look like wartime praying? Like prayer that is desperately being called out on behalf of your fellow soldiers who are in the middle of a battle. When you sit down in the morning or in the evening as you spend time alone with God in prayer, how much thought do you put into it? Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, gives one helpful example of what that might look like. This is not something that all are required to do, but it just gives you a picture of maybe if you struggle with strategy and prayer, which is something I think we all probably to some degree struggle with. If you have a hard time being strategic and intentional and organized in your prayer time, consider what Paul Miller says. He says one day he decided to grab a note card, and on that note card he wrote down the name of someone that he wanted to pray for, and then on that same card he wrote down some of the specific ways that he could pray for that person, and then on that same note card, he wrote down at least one scripture reference that would shape the way that he prayed for that person. And then he put the card to the side, and every day he would pick that card up and he would pray for that person. And then eventually he would do that for different people that he wanted to pray for, so that eventually he has this stack of people that he is regularly praying for with specific needs listed on it and specific scripture passages that help shape the way he prays for those individuals. That may seem very simplistic to you, 
But imagine how helpful it would be if you sit down in the morning and you have no idea what to pray for, and your mind is empty, and your, your mind is tired, and you're distracted, and you feel dull inside. Imagine how helpful it would be to be able to just reach for a stack of note cards and read names and see needs and see Bible verses accompanied with those needs and to pray. Have everything right there in front of you to be able to pray according to God's word in specific ways for other people. So one suggestion from Paul Miller with regard to how to approach prayer strategically would be to develop some sort of system with note cards, as simple and practical as that might be. So our prayers then are bigger than ourselves when they are for all the saints. And then secondly, our prayers are bigger than ourselves when they are prayed in the Holy Spirit. Again in verse 18, the first part of the verse, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. As we make intercession for the saints, as we pray for other believers, that prayer should be characterized by a fullness of the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? How can we pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, we can start by considering what praying in the Holy Spirit doesn't look like. So the scripture tells us there's actually a way to pray that is spiritless, that is fleshly, that profits absolutely nothing for anybody. Some examples of that. Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says that they pray mere words. They use mere repetition because they think that with their many words they'll be heard. In fact, they're only praying to be noticed by men, to be noticed by others, to sound good and appear knowledgeable or holy. And so Paul, or Jesus, in that case, he says that is fruitless praying. They have the reward in full by being noticed by other people. They have no reward with their Father. He doesn't pay attention to that kind of prayer. That is spiritless prayer, prayer that is prayed only to be noticed by others. And then in Matthew 15, Jesus says a way to pray spiritless prayers is to draw near to God with your mouth, but to have your heart far from him. So to have the form of prayer, but to have a heart that's not engaged at all. It doesn't believe. It doesn't desire the glory of God. It is detached from what your mouth is saying. That's spiritless praying. Or in James 4, there's an example of spiritless praying when he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So spiritless praying would be selfish praying, self-centered praying. Praying only to get what you want without regard for God's glory or the good of others or the advancement of the gospel. So spiritless prayer then looks like self-centered, empty words, not heartfelt, sincere prayer. So then what is spirit-filled prayer? Well, it's the very opposite of that. It's meaningful. It's heartfelt. It's fruitful, it's profitable, it's fervent, it's carried out in faith. Back in chapter 5, Paul talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you remember, back in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Maybe some of you will hopefully remember when we were in that verse, we considered what it meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I argued that it's in direct connection with the Word of God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is used nearly exactly synonymously with being filled with the Word of Christ. Colossians talks about being filled with the Word of Christ using almost the same exact language and surrounding content as what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit to be filled with the word of Christ. So 
then if to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Word of Christ, to believe the Word of Christ, to apply the Word of Christ, to have your mind and your heart shaped by the Word of Christ, then what does praying in the Holy Spirit mean? To pray with a mind and a heart that is shaped by the Word of Christ. The Spirit has breathed out the Scriptures. This Word is the Spirit's Word. And the kind of praying that the Spirit empowers and enables us to pray is prayer that believes God's Word and that prays according to God's Word. And so the the point is that as we seek to pray prayers that are bigger than ourselves, we want to pray prayers that are governed by the Holy Spirit, governed by what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the Word of God. When we pray in the Spirit, we're not to be preoccupied with what we think is best or merely our own desires. We don't just rush into prayer and pray the first things that come to our mind. The idea of praying in the Holy Spirit is that we ask the Spirit, first of all, to grant us faith in His Word, and then at the same time, we try to shape our prayers, we try to mold our prayers according to what the Spirit has revealed in His Word. That's what it looks like to pray in the Holy Spirit, to believe the Word of Christ and to shape our prayers according to the word which the Spirit has breathed out. And so again, just a couple of questions to ask yourself. Are you praying prayers that are bigger than yourself? Are your prayers Spirit-filled prayers? When you pray, are you rushing into the throne room and praying primarily your own thoughts and your own concerns? Or as you approach God in prayer, especially on behalf of others, are you attempting to understand what the desires of the Holy Spirit are? To really understand, what what does God want? What is the heart of God with regard to this particular matter? How can I believe it and pray according to what he has revealed to be his desire? I'm not saying that we shouldn't run to God with our desires. We should. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Every request you have, every burden of your heart, lay it on your Father in heaven. Don't hesitate to do that. But as you do that, you should at the same time be asking, what has the Holy Spirit said about this in his word? And how can I take this anxious thought to my father, not in the absence of the truth of his word, but subjected to the truth of his word? How can I run to my father who is in heaven, lay my anxious thoughts on him in a way that is shaped by the ministry of the Holy Spirit? So are your prayers then bigger than yourself? As you sit down to pray, are your prayers being shaped and molded by what the Holy Spirit has said to you in his word, and are they your prayers carried out in the faith that what the Spirit has said is true? And so prayer in the Holy Spirit lifts us out of our own limited perspective and helps us believe and pray for bigger things according to God's big picture, which he has inspired in his word by his Spirit. So we've seen so far then two things about prayer that's bigger than ourselves. First, it is prayer that's for all the saints. Second, it is prayer that's carried out in the Holy Spirit. And then third, it's prayer that is for gospel proclamation. It includes prayer for gospel proclamation. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So two primary requests from the Apostle Paul in those verses. First, he's asking that they would pray for utterance, that God would give them utterance. 
that God would give him utterance. And then second, he's praying for boldness, that God would make him bold. Paul recognizes that as he opens his mouth, he needs the Holy Spirit to speak through him. And then he also recognizes that as he opens his mouth, as he at least prepares to preach the gospel, he needs God to help him not be limited by his fear, to not be shut down by the fear of the consequences of opening his mouth and speaking. Every time Paul opened his mouth, he was putting himself in danger. And think about the Apostle Paul's life, think about the things that the Apostle Paul experienced. We see it all throughout his ministry. Every time the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, he was putting himself into a position to be persecuted and hated and rejected because of it. Just some examples of things that we find in Paul's life from the scriptures. He received five different floggings at the hand of the Jews. So five di- each of those, I think, containing 39 whips, 39 lashes, five different times at the hands of the Jews. He was beaten three times with rods. He was chased constantly from one city to another, fleeing for his life. He was stoned outside the city of Lystra and left for dead. He was slandered and rejected by the Jews. He was attacked by the Gentiles. He was slandered by false Christians within the church. He spent many years in Roman prison cells, which is actually where he's writing this letter from as we read it from him. He is sitting in a prison cell in Rome. And eventually, Paul was martyred for preaching the gospel. And so it's no wonder then that we read in places like 1 Corinthians 2 that when Paul went from city to city, he did so with fear and trembling in great weakness. He never knew what what would happen next every time he opened his mouth to proclaim the gospel. And so how was he able to keep speaking? If you're like me, you know the temptation to keep silent in the face of fear. Even the small kinds of consequences we might experience as Christians in our country for speaking the gospel, even still we feel the temptation to be quiet in the face of potential consequences. So how was Paul able, in the face of such massive consequences, how was he able to speak, to have boldness, because saints prayed for him? In Philippians 1, Paul references how he is confident he'll be delivered through the provision of the Holy Spirit because of the prayers of the Philippians on his behalf. He was confident that the saints' prayers for him were fruitful. They actually accomplished something in his life. So his request here for prayer from the Apostle Paul, it's not a mere formality. It's not a nice way to close his letter. It's not just a conversation filler like we might use it. But it's a legitimate plea. Please pray for me. I need you to pray for me. I am constantly facing opposition. I am constantly facing danger. I am constantly in danger of my own cowardly heart bowing down in fear rather than standing up in boldness and proclaiming the gospel. Pray for me that God would give me boldness. And the same need remains today in our own context. None of us are in Paul's circumstances. We're not facing the same kinds of dangers that Paul is facing. But proclaiming the gospel in a fallen world, no matter where we are, always comes with opposition, every time. Not that every person we preach the gospel to will oppose us, but inevitably, as we go about preaching the gospel, we will encounter those who present opposition to us. We don't have to look far to see that. I can think of some of the conversations I've had with those who minister 
the gospel at the abortion clinics, the kind of hostility they often face there. Or there are examples even within this room of people who have shared the gospel with family members even though they knew it wouldn't be well received and knew that it was potentially putting them in risk of being treated harshly by their loved ones. There are others who are students on campus who have preached the gospel to classmates or to professors, people who have preached the gospel to coworkers and bosses and have experienced harsh treatment and unfair treatment as a result of it. Everywhere we go, if we're going to preach the gospel, we need to brace ourselves for the inevitable reality that in one way or another, we're going to face some form of hostility and some form of opposition. It's true of every believer, everywhere the gospel's preached. So therefore, a substantial component then of our prayer life that is bigger than ourselves must include prayer for those who proclaim the gospel. Not just ministers of the gospel who are formally preaching, though that is absolutely included, but for all believers everywhere who are called now to be heralds of the gospel. We should be faithful in praying for boldness for them. Prayers that are bigger than ourselves are prayers that seek God's help for one another as we proclaim the gospel. Most of you are familiar with William Carey, who was a missionary in India for about 42 years of his life. So he spent over four decades there preaching the gospel, establishing a uh, missions agency, establishing churches, printing uh, gospel tracts and other resources in the languages there, and translating the Bible into the language there. Uh, Many of us are familiar with William Carey's ministry. It continues to have a legacy in India, even to today. How many of you are familiar with Polly Carey? Has anyone heard of the name Polly Carey? One person? Polly Carey was William Carey's sister. And for 52 of two years of her life, she was paralyzed, almost completely paralyzed and bedridden in England. And from her bed in England, she eagerly awaited word, obviously, from her brother, concerned about how he was doing in India. And William would regularly write to Polly, very consistently, letting her know what was going on, what he was working on, and what he needed prayer for. And for all 42 years of William Carey's life in India, his ministry in India, Polly prayed for her brother every single day for the advancement of the gospel. And I just wonder, when we are with Christ... And when we look back on history and we see the many ways that Christ worked through the various saints for the advancement of the gospel and the impact of his kingdom, I wonder how much of an impact Polly's prayers had. We all know of William, and we all recognize how much of an impact William had. But in the eyes of God and in the economy system of the kingdom of God, Polly's ministry was no less significant than William's. She was just as used by God for the advancement of the gospel in India, as William was, because of her faithful praying that William would be able to be used by God in the proclamation of the gospel. Paul is urging you to be like Polly. He's urging you to get outside of yourself when it comes to your praying, to look up, to look up and see the churches around us in our area, in the New River Valley, or to look up and see the work of the gospel in our nation, or to look up even further and see the work of the gospel among the many nations of the world. And then to pray strategically and specifically and persistently that God would grant boldness and utterance and consequently conversions to those who proclaim the gospel. To conclude now, we'll just look really briefly verses 21 to 24 as Paul closes this letter. He writes, 
but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, with incorruptible love. So Paul has just exhorted us to lift up our eyes, to pray prayers that are bigger than ourselves. And in these verses, he's showing that it's not just a prayer life that has genuine concern for others, but it's a heart of genuine concern for others that characterizes his ministry and should characterize ours as well. He expresses his desire in verses 21 to 22, first of all, to comfort the believers. He's saying they know he's in prison. They're concerned for him. Back in chapter 3, we read that Paul was worried they might get disheartened because they know that his imprisonment is actually the result of his ministry to them as Gentiles and that Paul's worried they, they might feel bad about that, feel guilty about that, and even be disheartened by the fact that he's in prison on their behalf. And Paul says, don't be disheartened. I'm glad to be in prison because my imprisonment is your glory. It's your salvation. I would be imprisoned a thousand times over if it meant your conversion, Paul essentially says in chapter 3. And here he's saying, I'm sending Tychicus to you so that he can comfort your hearts, so that he can assure you, I am not upset about being in prison on your behalf. I'm glad to be here. This is what Christ has called me to. I am an ambassador for him. I'm in chains to the Roman emperor, but I am in chains, first of all, to Christ Jesus. I am glad to be in prison on your behalf. And so he sends Tychicus to bring comfort to them. And then, secondly, he closes with a benediction to bring encouragement. He, he, he comforts them with the update on his circumstances, but he closes the letter with the encouragement, basically summing up everything that he said up to this point in his letter. He's encouraging them one last time in the foundational truths of their identity in Christ, which has been the whole theme of what we've seen in the letter to the Ephesians. Through Christ, he says, he says, peace to the brethren. Through Christ, we have, back in chapter 2, we have peace with the brethren because of our peace with God. Paul is, set, is assuring them, be at peace, brethren. Christ has accomplished peace. And then he says, again after that, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, there has been a full outpouring of the love of God into your hearts. The love of God that you receive from him, and then the love of God that God plants in your heart toward other believers. And faith. Paul has talked about faith in this letter as the means by which we are saved. Paul is reminding them, God has poured out his love into your lives. He has given you all of the faith that you need to be saved by God's grace, which is the next thing he says, grace to you as well. So we have received, we read in chapter 1, an abundant, unlimited outpouring of the grace of God through Christ. Paul is reminding them there is no limit to the outpouring of God's favor on you as a believer. And then lastly, he says, for all who love Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. The love that we have for Christ is incorruptible, not because we are strong or because we have the ability to sustain our own love for Christ. The love that we have for Christ is incorruptible because it is planted in our hearts by God. It is planted there by God. It is sustained by God. The divine source of our love for Christ ensures its permanence. 
You're weak and I am weak and our love often grows cold. But Christ guarantees that as believers, our love will endure all the way to the end. It is an undying love because it is sustained by an undying Savior. Paul ends this letter with encouragement, which is the theme that we see over and over again in his letters to the churches and his ministry to the churches. He is constantly seeking to encourage, to strengthen their hearts, to build them up. And so Paul not only had a prayer life that was bigger than himself, but he had a heart that was bigger than himself. His prayer life overflowed into a life of genuine concern for other believers, a legitimate, genuine desire to bring encouragement to the saints. The same should be true of us. One of the best ways to cultivate genuine concern for other believers is to pray for them. Pray diligently, pray persistently for other believers by name and in specific ways, and you will find that God grows your love for the saints. Paul had a heart that was big in love for the saints. So then, what's the takeaway from the passage this evening? It's the main point I'm trying to communicate that I think Paul would have us take away. I think it's hopefully been clear enough. We should strive to lift our eyes beyond ourselves. We should strive to lift our eyes above our own needs. And we should recognize that we're part of something far greater than ourselves. We are citizens of a great and eternal kingdom. And that kingdom is advancing not just in our little lives, but through the lives of every believer in all places. As we're about to sing in just a moment, the church is one foundation. In the second verse, we're reminded that the church is elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace Endued, the elect from every nation have one calling, one Lord, one purpose, one mission. We're a part of that. And so as Christ's church, as a local body of believers, we should be concerned with what God is doing here in this church. We should long for God to grow and increase the evidences of his grace among us, especially by adding more conversions, new souls to our number. But as members of Christ's church, we should lift our eyes beyond Christ's church. And we should recognize the many brothers and sisters that are around us right here and abroad. And we should pray for them. We should be diligent to pray on behalf of God's people. So our prayer life should reflect the reality of our oneness with all believers in all places. We should take all of our personal cares to the Lord. We should never hesitate to run to him with every anxious thought. But we should also strive to pray prayers that are bigger than ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have made us part of something far bigger than ourselves. We thank you that when you redeemed us by the blood of your Son, and when you united us to Christ by your grace, you also brought us into your eternal kingdom. And we thank you that as members of your kingdom, we have been given the wonderful calling of advancing that kingdom and praying not just for the advancement of your kingdom in our lives, but the advancement of your kingdom through all of your church, through all of your people. And we do pray, first of all, God, that you would help us to believe your word, help us to believe what you have said, and then help us as we pray to pray in a way that honors the spirit who inspired your word. Help us to pray in a way that reflects your desire and your heart for your people and for your purposes on the earth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him we have been washed clean made pure, made holy.
because of his merits. We pray that you would cause our hearts to find great confidence tonight in the merits of Jesus and help us to live lives that reflect the great and high calling to which we've been called. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.